hello, good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. Let's tilt this up a little bit. Hopefully we won't get too many plosives, but we probably will, because that's just the way things roll in the high-tech world of excitement. And uh, yeah, good evening. Good evening. How are you? Are we live? Yes, we're live. Hey, I'm just curious, just before, you know, a little bit of a warm-up while we get started. Have you ever had it where something you didn't like became something that you liked because a critic talked about it in an intelligent way? Have you ever had that? Something, nice to see you too. Nice to see you as well. Uh, hi, good evening, good afternoon. Good morning from Communist Melbourne. Wow, you guys are having quite the Hunger Games out there, aren't you? Wednesday night philosophizing. Yeah, have you had it? What's it been for you? I was just thinking about that this morning. About, there was a song on an album by Sting called The Soul Cages, called The Wild Wild Sea. I hated it, man. I, I'm a big Sting fan, or at least I used to be until I found out about his politics. But uh, it's a very odd kind of melody. Um, it's, uh, I saw it again this morning in the pale, and by the light of a darkening sky. And just as before in a moment, it was gone where the gray gulls fly. If it happens again, I shall worry that only a strange ship could fly. And my sanity scans the horizon by the light of the darkening sky. Anyway, it's, it's an odd it's an odd bit of music with very sort of swirly background instrumentals, and I really didn't like it when I first heard it. And then I read a review of it where somebody was talking about how the instrumentals recreated the ocean and, and the, the sea voyage, and, and I went back and listened to it with more consciousness, and I was like, yeah, it's really good. And, and I then became, it's a, well, that album is fantastic as a whole. Man, you want to hear a sad and powerful song? Um, uh, um, well, the Soul Cages is, is pretty good. All this time uh, is pretty good. Under the dark star sail, over the reefs of moonshine. Why should I cry for you? That's an amazing song. That is just an amazing song. Uh, Tantric Sting. Yeah, what did he say in concert? I've seen him a bunch of times in concert, and uh, he's pretty pretty good. Puts on a pretty good show. But he said he's, because uh, the, the joke is he's into tantric sex, where you have sex for two hours but don't orgasm. <laughs> Come on. Uh, and he said he wanted to get his wife into tantric shopping where she'd go shopping for a couple of hours but not buy anything. Looking forward to a great live stream. You've come to the right place. You've come to the right place. Also, I remember reading somewhere a Queen song I never got hugely into. It's called Dragon Attack. And I remember reading that uh, the bassist, John Deacons, it was his favorite track that they ever did. So I went back to listen to it again. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> it's actually pretty good. And the vocals on it are just amazing, so... Yeah, good evening. Now, hit me with a Y if you guys want to chat or do you want to type. What's your pleasure? I am happy to do whatever makes you happy. Because that's just the kind of selfless guy that I tend to be. So, the People's Republic of Alberta says hello. Yeah, that was not a very hold firm kind of position, was it? What's the hot topic? The hot topic is whatever you guys want it to be. Uh, you want to ask me questions, you want to type, you want to hit me with a Y. If you've got something you want to chat about, we can just switch over to voice. Tantric philosophy, debate for two hours and not reach a conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Rant. What should society and individuals do 
to help the incels? That's a pretty good question. That's a pretty good question. What should society and individuals do to help the incels? So when there's a big problem in society, almost always what is the case is it's not what society should do to help the people. It's what society should stop doing that will actually help people. And by society, of course, I mean I mean the government. So I posted this a while ago that one of the reasons why obesity has increased so much among women is because they don't need to keep a man happy. They can get fat. They're not going to get divorced, end up uh, being left for some other woman. They can just become fat because they get their money from the government. And so men don't need to work out if they're addicted to pornography and women don't need to be appealing if they're addicted to government money. You're just not in competition. You're not out there in the sexual marketplace trying to gain resources. And I saw this picture. Uh, if you've seen this picture, it's some sort of motivational thing. It's some fat guy with like two bikini models next to him. I don't know who he is. Apparently, he's someone fairly big. And it's really, it's really sad. It's just how twisted and warped the society has become in which we live. In that these women you know, with their pencil-thin thigh-gap legs and the giant sunglasses that basically makes them look like pre-tween anime characters and the tiny little purses and all of that. And, of course, that level of female attractiveness is supposed to be used to get resources from men for their children, right? It's all, all for the kids, and we've taken all of that resource acquisition and lust and materialism, and we've transferred it simply to selfish ends. It's not, women aren't getting resources to get kids, but rather ridiculous handbags and uh, yachting trips and, and so on. And it's really, it's really sad. It's really, it's really sad. So, yeah, no, volume's not low. It's, uh, I can see the monitor here, so you'll have to up your side. Married women gain 24 pounds in the first five years of marriage. Well, sure, because they can leave and take half the man's stuff, whether they've been a good wife or a bad wife, whether they've cheated or not, whether they've gotten bored or not, whether they have uh, well, dissatisfaction is the, like the number one reason that women give. And yeah, I mean, if your job is sometimes boring, why would you stay if you get paid either way? And so if the woman can get paid, regardless of whether or not she's providing any services to the man. I mean, the way that the current alimony laws work is sort of like uh, the man can divorce the woman, but she still has to cook and clean and have sex with him. And she still has to run his household and she still has to raise his children, but they're divorced, right? I mean, in which case it's like, well, that's not really divorce. But the way that it works now is that the man can fire his wife or she can quit and he still has to pay her. So it's just completely warped everything. But, uh, you know, that's, of course, what women voters want as a whole. So that's the way, that's the way it goes. Volume is great on DLive website. Yes, uh, a good carpenter never blames his tools. So uh, yeah, the volume is, the volume is fine. So as far as the incels go, so what's, what's going on? Well, women on, on a whole, did you see this WNBA thing? So there's this woman who helped win some WNBA thing, right? 
and LeBron James got paid like $34 million. She had similar statistics to LeBron James, but in the women's NBA, and she got paid like $250,000 or something like that. And this was considered massively unjust. And I, I, I don't know if it's women as a whole, but just people as a whole. It's like, I just, I'm so tired of explaining basic economic concepts to people uh, that it's so it's it's so retarded, and I apologize. That's really an insult to re retarded people and mentally handicapped people because they have the excuse of being mentally handicapped. But it's unbelievably cabbage-brained, dunderheaded vacuum of idiocy rolling around pretending to have a brain still gets the same vote as you and I. Because people think, I don't know, is it women as a whole? They think that there's just this big pot of money out there and you can just whine and nag and, and get your share. Because if LeBron James has paid $34 million and this woman in the, NBA, in the WNBA has paid $250,000, first of all, in the middle of a pandemic, whining about a quarter million dollar income seems a bit whiny. But secondly, okay, who determines your salary? <laughs> I mean, it should be a basic question. Uh, maybe if we get more female teachers, we'll finally get a breakthrough in economic understanding. Okay, who pays your salary? Well, the ticket goers pay your salary. And the ticket goers as a whole want to go and see LeBron James a lot more than they want to see this woman. So, And in fact, the women in the WNBA get more salary in an aggregated way. They get more salary as a percentage of the total ticket sales than people in the NBA, men in the NBA. So women are getting a higher percentage of their sales in salary than the men are, and yet somehow it's all unjust and wrong and unfair, and, right? And here's the funny thing, too. So when you go to a basketball game, an NBA game, it's mostly men who are there watching it. So the men are taking interest in the men's sports, and that's what they're doing, and that's driving up the prices. Now, of course, if women want female basketball stars to be paid more, then women need to pony up, open their purses, open their purses, which, you know, they open up their wallets and it's like, ask a man. That, that's their note, right? But they need to open up their wallets. They need to go to the goddamn WNBA games and they need to bid up the price of the tickets, right? So women could say, you know, we feel that the women's basketball players are significantly underpaid. So what we're going to do is we're going to all band together and we're all going to buy the living crap out of those tickets and we're going to buy concession stuff and we're going to buy merch and, and all, and we're going to just drive up the salaries by massive amounts of demand. Nope. See, that would be to actually put your money where your wine is, right? Where your wine cavity is. And that's not going to happen, of course, right? What's going to happen is women are just going to whine and complain. And then men are going to end up having to pay for male basketball players and female basketball players because women won't step up to support their own sisterhood of female basketball players by bidding up their salaries. Because it's not <laughs> – I think this was Ronda Rousey who was saying, you know, like, if, if female – what was she, uh, MMA or whatever? If, if female MMA fighters get paid less, it's because people don't want to see them as much and they just have to find some way to rouse up – any particular interest. If, if some female MMA fighters get paid more, it's not because the management is doing it for the ladies. It's just, you know, it's, it's not determined by management. It's determined by the ticket buyers. And I don't know, it's weird. I mean, everybody knows this, right? 
I mean, if you've got some favorite movie star and, and that movie star is in a movie, you're pretty likely to go and see it. And that way you're determining the salary of the movie star. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I don't know. Uh, it's exhausting. So with regard to the incels, women generally under-earn men, or to put it another way, women on average provide less immediate economic value. Women provide less economic value in the moment. Now, they provide infinite economic value in the future because men tend to be the most productive in the economy. And so the best thing that women can do for the economy is produce more men. That's just the way it works. The West, the, women can't fight as well as men, but if you need defense, then women need to produce male fighters in order to protect themselves. So in a lot of ways, uh, in terms of economic productivity, the best thing that women can do is just produce produce men. And that's fantastic. That's a wonderful contribution to the economy as a whole. So women don't make that much relative to men, or they don't produce as much value directly. And because of childbirth and, and because of uh, bell curve stuff and because of, you know, they, they prefer people rather than things, right? Women prefer interacting with people. Men are fine interacting with things and objects. Now, people can't be reproduced in the way that things and objects can. Right? So if you write a piece of computer code, it can go and get installed on a million computers, and thus you could make a lot of money. But if you really enjoy taking care of patients as a nurse, well, you can't reproduce that a million-fold, and so you just don't end up taking, making as much money. Things can be reproduced in a way that people and personal reactions can't. I can uh, talk about philosophy and broadcast it to millions of people. I can have personal conversations, talk about it with millions of people. But if you're a female therapist, it's a one-on-one -on -one thing, and therefore it can't be reproduced in the same kind of way. So that's, again, nothing wrong with it. It's just the reality. So, of course, in the past, before the welfare state, women would need men to provide for them while they were pregnant, while they were breastfeeding, while they were raising and wrangling toddlers, and also in their old age. Because when you get old and you're a woman, you haven't made much money over the course of your life. So you need someone to take care of you in your old age. You know, like half of your healthcare costs over the course of your life will be incurred in the last few months of your existence. All very expensive. Now, of course, you don't know that it's the last few months of your existence usually, so that's a different matter. So men, women would need men to provide and protect, particularly in their old age. Now, government provides for women provides for the health care of women and of their children, gives them shelter and food and old-age pensions and old-age health care and this, that, and the other. So women don't really need men anymore. Well, I mean, they do need men because they need, they need men to pay taxes so that they can, they can get stuff. And none of this is negative towards women. It's just the reality of the system that is. It just warps and destroys everything it touches. And violence does, right? So... Because women don't need men for survival anymore, and men have a similar relationship to pornography and, and so on, right? Although that's coercive in a psychologically abusive kind of way, but it's not coercive in the same way that taxation is. So as far as incels go, men are being replaced by the state, have been replaced by the state. And so women don't need men as much, and so women are recreational. They have recreational partners, right? They have flings, they have hot guys, they're alpha chasing, they're alpha widows, and so on. 
but they don't need to find a guy at a similarly equal level to settle down with because they can almost believe, they, they believe they can rely upon the state. And so, yes, because women now have recreational relationships with the top 20% of men, the bottom 80% of men don't, can't, can't get mates or at least find it very hard to as a whole. And so the top 20% of men have all the women that they want. And the bottom 80% of men can't get a stable partner or can't get a stable relationship. So well, it's really bad, right? I mean, it's really bad because society makes a deal. And society says, okay, you obey the rules and you can have a wife, you can have kids, you can have a middle-class lifestyle, give or take, right? But you have to obey the rules. You have to restrain your wilder impulses, your Dionysian side. You have to find some way to add value to the economy. You've got to get up early in the morning. You've got to go to work. You've got to all this kind of stuff, right? Now, in return for all of that anti-hedonism, you get a house, you get a wife, you get kids, you get some respect in your community, and um, you get a life. Now, society can't, what, what does it have to offer men now? It has tons to offer women, right, all this free stuff, but as a whole, what does it really have to offer men? I mean, it's been noted, and I talked about it with my daughter in our review of Camila Cabello's Cinderella, which is a very interesting movie, I think, very worth, worth watching and, and understanding and analyzing. Just put that out as a podcast and a video. But there's a lot of anti-male sentiment, of course. Well, of course there's a lot of anti-male sentiment because whoever you exploit, you must insult. Whoever you exploit, you must insult. And it's the only way that you can live with your conscience, which is constantly clamoring at you to stop preying on and exploiting people. So because men are exploited to pay for just about everybody else, men are insulted. Society doesn't have anything to offer men at the moment other than insults. And so the incels are hiving off from society with the MGTOWs and the monks and so on. They're hiving off from society and saying, okay, well, since I can't get any larger or deeper or more meaningful pleasures from participation in society, like a family, like kids, like respect, a house, a job, a career. Since I can't really get any of that stuff, I'll uh, just live for the moment. I won't bother with personal hygiene. I won't bother with exercise. I will just laze around, eat whatever I want, play video games, masturbate, whatever, right? It's, it's all just like monkey in a zoo stuff. So society just needs to stop replacing men and then wonder why men are anxious and depressed. So, yeah. All right, so let's see here. What's the hot topic? All right, what else have we got here? Can you discuss the future of politics if housing prices keep going up? I am not really doing politics anymore, sorry. Melbourne protests, yeah, didn't they ban any aerial flights from over the protests so nobody can see how big they are? Project Veritas COVID videos, I'm interested if they'll make any difference. I mean, that's locking the barn door after the horse has left because the vast majority of people have already taken the vax, right? So, What should a good woman be doing in this day and age? Uh, avoiding lazy loser men and pursuing and rewarding 
virtue with children. Right? The only way society advances is if women reward virtuous men with children. All right, let's see here. When is emotionality good and when is it bad? What does it depend on? So emotionality, it's interesting, right? So men, of course, have been, uh, a great demands have been placed upon men to open our hearts, be emotionally available, and so on. And no particular demands have been placed upon women to stop being so hypersensitive and being triggered by everything and learn to man up the way that men have for the last 150,000 years. But emotionality is good when it is not aimed at altering someone else's behavior, right? Emotionality is good, like honesty is good, when it's not used as a tool to manipulate others, right? So if you have an emotion and express an emotion with the goal of altering someone else's behavior, then your emotion is not authentic. If you're genuinely sad, then you express that you're sad, or you're genuinely angry, you express that you're angry. If you're angry because you feel insulted and you want to show your strength, okay, then that's manipulative because you're trying to dominate someone and change someone else's behavior. If you're sad because you want someone to bring you some cheesecake or something or whatever, right, then that's inauthentic and, and is not particularly great. Emotions should never be tools used to control and, and bully or arouse sentimentality or pity in other people. So have your emotions, absolutely. Express your emotions, absolutely. But do not, and you'll know, you'll know, you'll know when the emotion has no continuity and changes on a dime, then it's manipulative, right? So if someone is, is crying because they claim to be sad and then you say something that upsets them and they immediately go from sad to angry, you know that the sadness was just manipulative play acting. Really deep emotions have a kind of continuity to them. They don't turn on a dime. They're super tankers not skateboarders. And so when you're with someone and their emotions are constantly changing, it, it, all those emotions are then designed to be uh, manipulative and to gain control or an effect. And that's a very insulting way to use our deepest passions as kind of fish hooks to pull people around your particular preferences. How many incels grew up without a strong father figure? Well, the vast majority of men grew up without a strong father figure. All right. Do men have an innate sense of value for their mere existence that stems from sexuality and control of sexual access? Well, I mean, women control access to sex, but men control access to marriage, which is why the man has to ask and the man proposes and, and pays for the wedding usually and so on, right? So, yeah, I mean, men want sex and women want marriage. I mean, that's a very simplistic way to put it, and there's lots of exceptions, but I think that's not a bad place to start with regards to all of that. So women are in a massively high demand market when they're young. And there's a reason why a woman focuses on ornamental stuff while men focus on achievement, right? You don't see the TikTok videos or not of women learning how to um, change a wheel on the car. The, the TikTok videos are women working very hard 
to make themselves more attractive, right? And there's the before and after, you know, like they show yourself in your baggy clothes, then show yourself in a swimsuit. In your baggy clothes, you jump and then you've got the swimsuit. Or I've yet to see a man, there's these TikTok videos, I think, of women like, you know, Monday, Tuesday, when like all the different outfits they have for the week. I've never seen a man do that, of course, because that's just ornamental. So women are about looking good and men are about achieving things. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. A woman is showing that she has good genetics and the man is showing that he can provide. I've gone through the makeup thing a million times before, so I won't do it again. But that's, that's the deal. There's nothing wrong with that. So for women, they don't have necessarily an innate sense of value, but the woman is designed to be as attractive as humanly possible so that she can gain resources from the most productive man. And that's perfectly, uh, perfectly fine. So a woman is an ornament and a man is an achiever. Now that of course changes after the woman gets the man that she wants and gets married, then she starts to have kids and then she has no longer an ornamental thing going on. She's got a have and raise kids and what was it? I wrote once about a, a female character in one of my novels that she had a brief bloom of beauty somewhere between 18 and her second child, you know, but, you know, children uh, erase the beauty of women, which is exactly what children should do, right? So children should erase the beauty of women because the beauty of woman is like the, the, the launching stage of a rocket. It's designed to burn up and be thrown away. The beauty and, and youthful, rosy-cheeked fertility and, and clear eyes, clear hair, great figure, all of that is designed to catch the man, and then it's designed to be burned up by children so that other men aren't going to try and have affairs with her, and she can really focus on child raising and so on. So, And this is right, the fact that, that children will destroy a woman's figure to some degree and that they will take away some of her youthful luster. I mean, I remember my wife complaining that after she had my daughter, uh, her hair was thinner now. She's got this crazy Greek thatch to begin with, like together her and I made a child with normal hair. But yeah, that, that happens. That happens, of course, and, and you hear that, that quite a bit. The mom bod, right? You always hear about the dad bod, but it's the mom bod, right? And of course, men are designed to become less attractive as we age because we're focused, like our attractiveness, so to speak, physically, has already achieved its object which is to get a permanent life partner. So the woman stretches out this attractiveness thing way beyond its due date. And that's really uh, unhealthy and, and bad. You, you shouldn't take something which is designed for the survival and continuation of your species and turn it into a shallow vanity act of who's checking me out in a restaurant until you're 40. I mean, that's just pathetic. That's really sad, really sad. Um, and very tempting, of course, but... Uh, we should be trained out of that. So, is it true that men, that women want a traditional man, but don't want to be traditional women? I don't know that that's particularly true, uh, as you probably know, right? So, women, and these studies have been replicated many times. When women are ovulating, they want the bad boys, and when they're not ovulating, they want the more stable beta providers, right? And um, that's just hormones, right? I mean, you and I, as a man. If, if you're a man listening to this, like we're kind of like boring tanks, nothing particularly changes. You got to work to keep your testosterone up as you get older, but nothing particularly changes for us for like 
I don't know, from 20 until 50. We're just basically a tank. We might lose some hair, might get a little bit of uh, love handles or muffin top or whatever, but basically we're the same. Whereas women have gone through, like, you know, they've gone through wildly body-altering puberty and menstruation, and, you know, then they've gone through um, uh, menopause and hot flashes that can go on for years, I mean, and hormone cycles every month. Where men are just, you know, just one note, whereas women are like this jazz trumpet on a... Um, uh, a, a sort of vibrating trampoline uh, with somebody who's got emphysema. So we don't really know what that kind of up and down mood swings are like. And so it's something that we have to, I think, reach out with some real compassion and understanding for that kind of stuff. So, All right. What do we got here? Economics is broken. Everything is broken. Walk across the board and you have more rights than I do. Oh, yeah, and of course, uh, everybody who flies gets subjected to every vaccination requirement in the known universe, but you can come wandering in from another country overland, and it's nuts, right? I mean, like, where on earth did 15,000 Haitians come from? I mean, how? How? It's crazy. I heard that they were actually doing fairly well in their countries that they had moved to, whether Dominican or something like that, but uh, it turns out they just wanted to come to America because you can get even more free stuff in America. And yeah, that whole experiment is done now. That's why I simply couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't be honest to uh, deal with uh, politics these days because it's not about theory or arguments or debates anymore. It's just about demographics. All right. Um, what was I going to, geez, I was about to do something here. Oh, yes, that's what I was about to do. I was about to hand out some lemons. Let's lemon it up, baby. Lemon. All right. What do we got here? Uh, yeah, I can start watching myself. That's what, oh, you handsome, smoky-eyed devil, you. All right. Cannot donate to yourself. Yeah, that's fair. Oh, oh, there we go. Yeah, let's throw let's throw some out. We'll do some now. We'll do some later. All right. No one complains that male models make less than female models. Yeah, well, because, you know, what's the point of a man complaining? I mean, for a man to complain uh, just means that he'll never get laid, right? All right. What have we got here? Would you rather watch elite athletes or athletes with vaginas? When you were growing up, were leftists as crazy as they are today? No, 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 of course not. No, no, see, when I was growing up, the lefties were in the opposition. Right, so the lefties were all about openness, tolerance, free speech, so that they could spout their crap and get away with it. And then, of course, like everyone, uh, like everyone on the left, they preach tolerance until they get power, and then they try to destroy their enemies by any means possible. So, let's see here. Women care less about condoms with attractive men. Yeah. And remember, so sperm itself, hang on, let me check. Yeah, so sperm itself has antidepressant properties for women. And they've done studies where women whose partners are using condoms are more depressed, more anxious, more subject to mood swings. Sperm is a mood stabilizer for women. And so when a woman is unhinged, you know, this sort of Karen, the triggered, the whatever it is, right? It's a kind of a cliche and not the only place you'd look, but it's a place you'd look fairly early on to say, okay, well, are they having sex where they're getting access to the mood-stabilizing, antidepressant, uh, happiness-enhancing properties of semen? Semen goes counter to a lot of the anxiety and depression that women can be subject to or prone to. 
And so when I see women who are, you know, tense and angry and frustrated and moody and so on, I mean, it could well be the case that they're just not getting nature's happy joy juice of sausage happy injections from the man meat, right? So need to keep an eye on that neck hair, mate. Do I? Do I really? Yeah, let me, let me focus on that because that's really, really important, right? Uh, any thoughts on the current energy crisis in the UK or Europe? You think I could collapse at the energy sector? Well, sure. I mean, that's because the, you know, the, the, the Greens that are funded by the Reds and by the Saudis are working to destroy the economy so they can blame capitalism, sure. Men swipe right on 60% of female profiles on dating sites versus 4% of women swiping right. Right. So there's a sort of funny thing that happens in the dating markets. And, and let me know if you found this to be the case. So when a man looks at a woman, he thinks of her basically in isolation. He thinks of going on a date with her, bringing her home, maybe cuddling, having sex, whatever. He thinks of her in isolation. When a woman looks at a man, she often will think, what will my friends say? Will my friends look down on me for dating this guy? If I show up at an event with this guy on my arm, will I be envied or scorned? Will people look up to me or, or pity me? And uh, like it or not, that's just the way women evaluate. It's less to do with, do I find him necessarily attractive? And it's more to do with, will my social status go up or down if I'm with this man? And men don't generally think about this as much. Uh, let's see here. What causes people to pause in conversation to think about how to say the next thing? Met someone smart recently, but this gets in the way. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, that's because we have devolved into totalitarians of the self, right? I was hoping to bring about utopia, as in Y-O-U, like you could be the utopia, but basically what's happened is everybody's the Stasi these days, right? I mean, anything you say, anyone could be recording or could post what you said, even if they just recall it later, to social media and said, oh, I was with so-and-so, and you won't believe what he said. And then you're out, and then it gets back to your employer. Uh, and, you know, there's sinister forces who are just looking to destroy your life. And so now we just live in this, I mean, come on, you guys know. You, you can't say anything to anything. You can't say anything to anyone anymore. Uh, it's, it's too, there's too much sort of Damocles poised for destruction stuff going on. Now, it's my job. It's a little bit different. But for most people, yeah, they're, they're terrified of, of if someone says, oh, do you want to talk about this controversial topic? They're afraid that it's a trap and that they're going to get destroyed. So, If someone can only spend time with you when they're high, aren't those emotions essentially fake? Well, it just means that they can't take themselves or you sober, and it's not a very good indication for the relationship. What do you think drives the existential crisis that liberals have about climate change? Is it just the modern-day doomsday prophecy? Okay, so for that, we need to reference the R versus K stuff that I talked about before. So K-selected creatures are usually apex predators, and they have fewer young. They invest heavily in their young. They transfer knowledge and hunting skills and so on. You think of sort of wolves and, and so on. And the R-selected creatures can't really control their lifespans, and they're never really out of food. So the rabbits, they just eat until they get eaten, right? Antelope, zebras, you name it, right? So if you grow up without a sense of the future, 
you will be hedonistic in the moment. I just did a call and I haven't released it yet. It's a call in with a guy just talking about how he grew up not really believing that there was much of a future and all of that. And he actually posted on social media that he held a weapon to his head when he was uh, 14 years old. It was just, yeah, it was really rough. So if you're living for the now, at some point you're going to be visited by the vague suspicion that you might be a complete dunderheaded lower base mammal reptilian fool who's shredding his future for the sake of easy pleasures in the here and now. Hedonism comes with it a certain anxiety. And that anxiety is, I'm kind of living like a brain-dead mammal rather than the better angels of our nature that waft us up to lofty heights of planning and abstraction and ambition and virtue and shaping society for the better. So when you're hedonistic, you get the pleasures of the moment, and underneath all of that are these rotting corpses trying to get to the light called, maybe we shouldn't be living like nerve endings looking for release. Maybe we should think about more than our next meal, our next drunk, our next belly squirt. Maybe we should elevate ourselves a little higher. Now, the problem is, of course, when you are hedonistic, you're surrounded by hedonistic people. And if you try and break out of that hedonistic circle, you will be attacked, mocked, ostracized, and you'll end up feeling very alone, which is very painful. And if you haven't trained yourself to deal with pain, if you haven't trained yourself to defer gratification, right? Like I had a real headache this afternoon. It's very unusual. I get like maybe two of these a year. I just had a headache this afternoon. And I decided to do the show because it's Wednesday night and it's great to chat with you guys. It's important to get thoughts down and help the world and so on. But it wasn't my first choice. I'm happy to be doing it now, but it was not, um, I was not pumped and ready for it as I usually am. So that's fine. So here's the problem. The only way to sustain your crappy low rent lifestyle is to imagine there's no future. Well, there is a future. The future will be there whether you prepare for it or not. And so when you are selected, when you live for the moment, when you're hedonistic, you are inevitably and innately drawn to apocalyptic scenarios because they justify your hedonism. You understand? They justify your hedonism. If you've got a plan, you're 20, you've got a plan for the next 50 or 60 years, then you've got to defer gratification. You've got to be a wiser, better, more mature human being. But if you can imagine that the world's going to end in 10 years and what does it matter and you know, live, live fast, die young, and live a good-looking corpse. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Hope I die before I get old, right? All that kind of stuff. Well, then you can... So you are drawn to these apocalyptic scenarios as a way of justifying your hedonism. And if you can't come up with one of your own, you'll be very happy if governments supply you with one. So it's, two ways. it's a two-way street. Number one, people who are already hedonistic are massive consumers of apocalyptic literature. And number two, apocalyptic scenarios and literature will create hedonists as well. So it becomes a real vicious circle. I hope that, uh, I hope that helps. All right. Yeah, let's see here. People's Party of Canada is growing. Yeah. I barely uh, paid any attention to the election. All right. Ah, let's see here.
how are the ducks? The ducks are well, very well. In fact, I can't even bring them on camera. They're so huge now. Um, they are big and their, their wings are just coming in like crazy at the moment. So they are just lovely animals. I highly, highly recommend them. They're doing very well. Thank you. Let's see here. Ooh, look at that. Got 100 messages. Thoughts on the People's Party of Canada's recent growth? Hopeful for the future like I am. Well, you know, could, could happen. Could happen. But my guess is that if they get any kind of prominence or any kind of popularity, then the, um, the media will simply dox the leaders and the leftist extremists will pay them a little visit and it'll probably be it for that. So, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I shouldn't, I shouldn't mention this, but I, will. I was thinking about this the other day. So last couple of times, I went out to give perfectly legal free speech arguments in the public square, right? I'm talking Australia and, and, and New Zealand and, and Canada and Vancouver. Went out, got venues, sold tickets, everybody wanted to come and see, 1,000 people here, there, whatever, right? Go out and give perfectly legal speech about philosophical arguments. There was rioting, death threats, bomb threats, uh, physical attacks of the venues, physical attacks upon the people who were coming to see, right? Buses got tipped over. People threw giant batteries at bus windows. They ripped the sidings off the bus. Like just absolutely feral attacks upon the free speech possibilities. And I fought my way through and gave the, um, gave the speeches and took the questions and, and all of that where it was possible to do so. So that's philosophy, right? That's, that's philosophy. Now, How many protests have there been outside of the Chinese embassies for China's role in facilitating the release of this virus into the world? <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it is a little bit funny. It's very black comedy, but it's kind of funny, right? That I, as a guy who's always advocated for peace and reason, try to go and give a speech, and there's unbelievable levels of violence and bomb threats and death threats and protests and physical attacks and so on, right? And the media cheering it all on for the most part. China destroys how many trillions of dollars worth of value by facilitating the release of this virus. Or, of course, as one Chinese dissident and um, refugee has stated, somebody who was formerly in the Chinese Communist Party, they say, oh, yeah, you know, China released it in the um, international athletic war games in Wuhan in, uh, what was it, September of 2019. And there's no protests in front of any Chinese embassies. But I try to go and give a speech as a peaceful, reasonable guy, and there's just violence everywhere, right? And I, I can't fix that. <laughs> I can't fix that. Consequences are going to have to fix that. That's far beyond the, mo the role of reason to solve. 70% of male millennials expect to become millionaires. I think it's because they feel this need to compete in dating. Are they right? Well, most millennials will become millionaires. It's just that a million dollars will buy you half a loaf of bread. I once thought men should be more emotionally vulnerable until I met an overly emotional man, absolutely exhausting person. Look, anybody who just can't manage their own emotions will become exhausting and tyrannical. Anybody who's like this big, raw, open walking wound will be exhausting to be around over time. It, it is just brutal because you spend your entire time shielding off, uh, shielding them from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and so on. No, no, no good. I think passion is great, but 
if you can't manage your own emotions, if you can't control your own emotions, you inevitably end up trying to control others and being totalitarian in that way. So, My mother was emotionally manipulative. Yeah, for sure. I'm sorry about that. I hate when women fake cry. It's probably why they'll do it. So you'll give them resources when, uh, so they'll stop. Women are the decorative sex. Well, again, only until they have kids and raise kids, right? Then they're not. How did you meet your ornament? Um, I met my wife playing volleyball. She was on a volleyball team. I was on a volleyball team. And ah, it's a funny story, right? So we met. Um, she, she, my, uh, my wife, very, very attractive. Sorry, I know everyone said that. I was very attractive, but she, she dressed down because she was tired of being judged by her look. So she just no makeup. And she wore this big half a burka, like a tent and stuff like that. Anyway, so we played volleyball, and everybody from our volleyball team was supposed to go out for, for dinner, and so I made sort of plans to do that, and everybody else flaked, and so it was just my future wife and I, and I had just got my first book published, and she said, uh, how was your day? And I said, oh, it's fantastic. I just got my first novel published. And she was like very interested because, you know, she's very intelligent, intellectual and all that. And anyway, so it was just kind of funny. Um, uh, she said, oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe I could read it sometimes. And I said, well, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, you can't read it because that's reverse psychology making you want it more. And she says, no, 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 I practice psychology. That won't work on me. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> And then we went for dinner and it was a fantastic thing. I actually kept, you know, the, the bill comes in these little folding things at the restaurant. I actually kept that completely unconsciously. I walked out of that evening with the, the woman who became my wife after just a fantastic conversation all night long. And I just hung on to that. I just walked out. I couldn't take her home, but I could take that home from the restaurant. And from there... Yeah, we barely spent a day apart. Um, well, then yeah, we met, and then the next day was um, the next day was Valentine's Day, so we went out for Valentine's Day, and it was really yeah, just lovely. And uh, within a couple of months, we were I proposed, and we were married within eleven months of our first date. All right, let's see here. Why do I always get scared when I need to confront someone? I get the shakes and severe anxiety. Oh, hey, Rachel, nice to meet you. I'm not sure if we've talked before, but... Um, so I would imagine... I don't like to use the term PTSD because it sounds so big and dramatic and so on, but I would imagine it's something like post-traumatic stress disorder. I use this, of course, in a completely amateur context. I can't diagnose anyone. But... It's because in the past, when you would try to confront someone or try to assert yourself, you would have been yelled at, abused, beaten, ostracized, insulted, attacked, uh, sent to your room. And so if in the past you've been aggressed against significantly, particularly when you're a helpless and dependent child, then when you put yourself back into that situation your body will assume that you're confronting a parent and you're seven and they're going to get violent or abusive or ostracizing you in some manner, which is really a death sentence, right? Ostracism is a death sentence for children. So can't survive on our own. So 
My guess would be, so, and you think we, we sort of evolved in these small tribes, 50 to 100 people, where everyone was kind of the same. The culture was the same, everyone's kind of the same. So if you were raised as a, a girl in a, in a situation where any kind of self-assertion or confrontation or whatever, that, that you would be aggressed against that, that would happen for the rest of your life. In other words, you wouldn't meet someone who didn't do that. So that is why it's would make perfect sense for you to continue to avoid behavior that would get you abused when there was no possibility of ever confronting someone successfully because the tribe just didn't allow it. But now, of course, we can change our tribe, we can change our environment, we can change our society, and we can end up around people who will not only allow us to be assertive, but will encourage us to be assertive. Because you can't maintain a relationship with somebody who's not assertive, because all they do is bury their own needs and end up resentful. So uh, I would imagine it's, it's not... It's not some bizarre fear that you have. It's simply your, your nervous system saying, this is a familiar environment. This got us attacked and threatened last time, and we're going to be scared this time. Uh, oh, gosh, I am behind. <laughs> Man complains women most affected. <laughs> Protests in Melbourne. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, this is inevitable, right? When, when, when free speech is no longer allowed, um, people become... Uh, aggressive. That's, I mean, I, I've honestly been saying this since like my third podcast 16 years ago, that it's free speech or violence, that, that there's no, there's no third choice. There's no third choice. And so there's no free speech. And so it's inevitable. And um, it's uh, unbelievably predictable. And everybody's pretending to be shocked. Right? Uh, stop talking about sperm, mate. Have you ever been whaling? <laughs> All right. Uh, definitely got to pitch that one to the wifey. Oh, the, yeah, you seem stressed. Let me uh, give you some happy joy mail juice. Steph, do you have any theories on where perfectionism comes from? You're assuming that I'm not a perfectionist. Um, so perfectionism comes from irrational punishment. Straight up. Straight up. Perfectionism comes from bad-tempered people looking for any potential mistake or imperfection so that they can unleash their bad tempers and bully people until they feel better and more in control of themselves and more powerful. And so if you have a parent who is bad-tempered, they can't just be honest and say, well, I just need to yell at you until I feel better and stronger. Sorry, but that's just the way it is, right? What they have to do is they have to invent some reason as to why you've done something wrong and didn't rise to their lofty standard of perfection, and then they'll just take a big psychological or physical dump all over you, right? And so when we're told that we, or, or when it happens in our life, that we get attacked and abused because we didn't do something perfectly, right? We have a choice. We have a choice in life as kids. It's not much of a choice, but it does exist. And the choice is this. Let's say your, your dad screams at you because you didn't cut the lawn perfectly, right? Or you missed a spot or whatever it is, right? Your dad screams at you. Okay. So you have a choice. You can either say, my dad is an idiot toddler who can't manage his own emotions and would rather abuse his child than be mature and responsible as an adult. Okay, that's really terrifying. That the person in charge of you is a dangerous infantile bully, prone to tantrums and emotional instability, and that they're pretending it's something to do with how you cut the grass. 
rather than he's just ill-tempered and immature. Or what you can say is, so that's one, and that's usually too terrifying for kids, usually too terrifying for kids. And the other thing too is that that will also lead you to be more abused because you ever have this, like if you have an immature, abusive parent, if you look at them and you're thinking that, you know they know that you're thinking that, right? Like there's this psychic transfer that occurs between parent and child that if you're looking at your parent thinking, you're just an overgrown toddler that's an insult to toddlers because you're 40 and toddlers are two. You're prone to tantrums, immaturity, violence, aggression, abuse, manipulation. You're just like this empty shadow of reflected nothingness that attempts to create some sense of identity by putting other people down. Like you're just a terrible, dangerous, empty shell of a human being. Now, if you have those thoughts and you look at your parent that way, that will transfer to your parent and then thermonuclear explosion, right? If you get too close to the exposure of the false self and people who have no true self left. I mean, it's unbelievable how badly that goes. So for the most part, it's a very dangerous thought to have that. Oh, lighting just changed. Yes, I thought the power went out. So if you have that going on in your life, you can't say that as a kid. So what you do instead is you say, my father has very high and lofty standards that I just really, really need to rise to meet. And he's really trying to make sure I do a fantastic job. And he's, you know, he's just, he's just, everything should be perfect for him. And I, I'm going to improve to meet his standard. And that's where perfectionism comes from. Perfectionism comes from an emotional inability or unwillingness to accurately evaluate the pettiness of parents. I mean, I remember many years ago when I used to have gatherings uh, of FDR people, um, asked for some, some people came early and I asked for some help and they were all, uh, not all, some of them were kind of nervous. Like, oh, every time I did this with my dad, there'd be some problem, they'd get mad at me or whatever. It's like, hey, I appreciate the help. I really do. And uh, yeah, any of that. So yeah, just look for, and here's the thing too, like if, if you have a, you didn't cut the lawn the way your dad thinks is perfect and he gets really mad at you because he's such a perfectionist, it's like, well, how about being mildly perfectionistic about parenting, which is don't scream at your kids for that, right? <laughs> All right. Does the happy sperm work on men too? I don't think so. All right. If you don't agree with the left, you're a German soldier from 1942. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think men with dark triad traits are more successful on dating apps? Are they? So women, you can gauge where society is going by the type of men that women choose. Straight up spit and fire facts here. You can absolutely tell where society is going by the types of men that women choose. So if you look at the 1950s, you've got uh, Ward Cleaver, right, from Leave it to Beaver. You have um, Fred McMurray from My Three Sons, and I haven't, there was a whole bunch of these. And these were like stable, calm, reasonable, assertive men who were in masterful control of themselves, who were very positive and productive in just about every conflict, who knew how to raise kids, who knew how to be husbands and fathers and were productive in the economy and just, you know, all around pretty great guys. 
And that was the ideal. And that's because you were post-war, there was a situation of peace and plenty and security and, and all of that. And so the, that was the ideal, right? The sort of Cary Grant and, and uh, Clark Gable and, you know, that, that kind of man, right? And that's women preparing themselves for peace and plenty by coming up with stable, benevolent providers. Now, when the future of society appears to be much shorter or more volatile or bad times are coming, women will turn towards the most aggressive, short-tempered, highly fused, bald, big muscles, rock-style guys that they can find. Why? Obviously, because in a situation of peace, reason and maturity win. In a situation of chaos, then short tempers, big muscles, and uh, selfishness win. And so the dark triad personalities are very productive in chaotic and dysfunctional times. There's a reason why they've maintained themselves and they've continued. And so we have a fight between maturity and selfishness, so to speak, right? And these are very reductionist terms, but I just need a shortcut for this, right? So it's not just that the dark triad traits do well in times of chaos. The dark triad traits seek to spread themselves by creating chaos. Let me say that again. The, the dark triad or the negative personality traits that we would consider in times of peace, the aggressive and violent personality traits seek to create chaos so that they can spread. They can get the women. They can spread their genes. And so, like the Marlon Brando versus the Fred McMurray, right? The Marlon Brando wants to create chaos so that he can spread his genes. The Fred McMurray character wants to create peace, reason, and order so he can spread his genes. And society just, you know, with the state, just swings back and forth between these things. So, Unfortunately, right now, the weather vane of women's sexual market preferences are pointing very much towards uh, winter is coming. Steph doesn't use the I have a headache excuse, no. Let's see here. I have a sudden urge for cheese fries. Yeah, I uh, didn't eat much today, so I'm a bit of cheese while I eat. You know who loves cheese? Ducks. Ducks love cheese. Uh, somebody says, I wanted to do a call about having an apocalyptic attitude, but was rejected by producer Mike. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Well, send an email in uh, to call in at freedomain.com. Will life be like Futurama? <laughs> Not in the short run. Have you ever tried giving public talks in Canada? Yeah. Yeah, so last time I tried, it was out in Vancouver, um, maybe two years ago. Maybe two and a bit. And... Yeah, I mean, the leftists attacked the venue, attacked priests, attacked their cars. The priest called. I was going to give a talk because in the church as a backup. The priest called for the police. The police never even showed up from the 911 call. So, yeah, it's not, not possible. You do, when you can't even get any protection, all you're doing is putting the audience in danger by going ahead with the speech. So, I remember Billie Eilish saying in an interview that people should just enjoy everything in life because we will all be dead anyway. Right, so that's your R-selected, and she definitely is R-selected, which is basically satanic. Any debates coming up? Are they usually spontaneous? No, I don't really, I'm not really doing much work with other people these days, so I didn't. Why do siblings bully? Well, siblings bully because they're bullied, right? So, so divide and conquer is very key for parents, right? If the parents are abusive, they will do their utmost to set the children against each other. 
because if the children unite, then they have a strong base from which to criticize the parents upwards, which reduces parental authority and so on. And parents can't escalate too much because they'll go to jail, right? So they have to make sure they divide and conquer. And there's lots of ways. Uh, you, you give unequal portions to kids. You put the older child in charge of the younger child. You tell the older child to continually take the younger child on friend outings and so on. You just make it annoying for the children. Uh, the older child in particular will then turn on the younger child. And they'll be at odds with each other. They'll attack each other. And then the younger child, with all that resentment, when the younger child gets older, will stronger, will start to fight back. And you just make sure that you turn the children against each other. And that way they can never unite against the parents. Let's see here. What do you think causes oversensitivity? That is a fine question. So uh, oversensitivity would come from the following scenarios, I think. I'm, I'm guessing, right? Well, it's more than a guess. So when you are a baby, you get emotional storms, right? You're, you're, you're happy and you giggle like a maniac. You are, you are frustrated and you cry and you scream and you pull at your mask and all that kind of stuff, right? Now, the fundamental thing that you need to do as a parent is teach your child how to self-soothe. How to self-soothe. So self-soothing is when you have internalized the comfort that your parents bring to your upset to the point where you can comfort yourself. And that's called maturity. Maturity is when you are not dependent upon other people to manage your emotions, but you can manage your emotions yourself. That's maturity. So if you have a parent, like you're upset, and the parent smiles and coos and tries various things to make you feel better and um, gives you a cuddle and, and strokes your hair and, you know, whatever it is that, that helps you soothe eye contact, and you know that your parent is there to try and make yourself feel better and that they will work until you feel better, then you learn how to soothe yourself. You say, okay, well, my emotions are important and they matter and people will take care of them and they'll figure out what the problem is. And then you will internalize that. And then when you're upset, you'll figure out what the cause is. You'll know you'll be able to handle it and you'll deal with it, right? So what's called sensitivity is when something goes wrong and you feel like dread. You feel like the bottom is just falling out of your personality, like you're being dangled over a canyon, like it's doom and nothing's ever going to get better and things are hopeless. And, right? and that is because when you were a baby and a toddler, your parents didn't soothe you. They didn't make you feel better. In fact, a lot of times parents will make upset toddlers, babies and toddlers, feel worse. I'll give you something to cry about or, you know, shut up your little brat or, you know, I can't believe you're being this selfish and you've got a candy bar yesterday. Shut the hell up. But whatever it is, right? I mean, they'll, they'll take a child's upset and they will use that as an opening to stick the shiv in and twist it, right? In which case, being upset leads to absolute disaster. Being upset leads to absolute disaster. And so that's called oversensitivity, but that's because the internalization of being soothed, which becomes self-soothing, which is maturity, has not occurred. You need to teach your children how to self-soothe. It's more important than teaching them how to read or write or speak or toilet train. Teaching your children how to self-soothe is so important. It's so it's, it's the most important thing you're going to do as a parent is teach, you, teach your child how to self-soothe. Because when they can self-soothe, they're not going to be dependent upon others to manage their emotions. They're not going to be manipulative. 
They're not going to freak out when someone disagrees with them. They're going to have a mature and civilized existence full of love and negotiation and possibility. So, uh, What causes women to be so susceptible to propaganda and hate men? Well, when women can be talked into trading freedom for security, when they can be talked into enslaving men for their own bad decisions, they will end up hating men because, as I said before, whoever you exploit, you must despise. You cannot respect someone and exploit them at the same time. That's like, I don't know, that Led Zeppelin album about anal sex called In Through the Outdoor. But, so, let's see here. Why do some people idolize a celebrity and view them as perfect? I did celebrity culture last show or two, so I won't do that one again. Listen to the Cinderella show. Amazing how articulate your daughter is. Oh, yeah, she's she's smarter than me. And I know that sounds like a bit of a cliched parent thing. Oh, so much smarter than me. I mean, yeah, stuff I'm better at than her, but she's smarter than me in, in many things. And that's a, that's a lovely thing to see. Um, interested in doing that dream analysis I sent you a while ago. Uh, yes, I'm so sorry about that. Uh, I have been uh, remiss in that. I've had a bunch of other work to do related to the show, but not show facing, so. All right. Last questions or comments, please let me know. How can humans love and exploit animals, livestock, and pets? But you can't love animals. You can't. You can't love animals because love is our involuntary response to virtue, and animals are incapable of virtue. They're incapable of virtue. They're incapable of evil because animals cannot compare proposed actions to an ideal state called virtue. And so you can have attachment to animals. You can bond with animals. But, you know, when, when we got the ducks, when they were three days old, right, and the ducks followed us everywhere we went, it wasn't because they had evaluated our character and found us to be very virtuous. No, the ducks followed us because they bonded. And they bond with anything that we can get ducks to bond with an orange balloon, if that's what they see when they come out of the egg. So you, we can't love animals because animals cannot be virtuous and we can only love virtue. Does that mean you can't love your ducks? Of course I can't love my ducks. They're ducks. <laughs> I could love them with a white wine sauce and a little Chianti. <laughs> but no, it's... Um, no, you can't. You can't love ducks. You can be very affectionate towards them. You can really love the effect that they have on your daughter and their cuddliness and all of that and so on, right? But no, there's no... You can't, you can't love the ducks. We got a small kitten and now she's very affectionate for only me. Yes, but that's not because you are a virtuous person and she admires your moral courage. She doesn't look up to you in that way. You treat her well, and so she'll respond to you because you treat her well and all that, right? So, Let's see. If you have addictions, does that mean there is still trauma in the past to uncover? So, yeah, I would say, I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Because addictions are there to help you manage trauma, but then addictions become a trauma that you have to manage. So addictions are a way of keeping you on that treadmill of trauma forever. And um, I would assume that if you deal effectively with the trauma, and dealing effectively with trauma is one thing and one thing only. It's, you will have dealt effectively when the trauma with the trauma, when the trauma no longer replicates in your present life. That's how you know you have dealt effectively with the trauma. If your hand is in fire, you've dealt effectively with that when your hand is no longer in the fire, right? That's the way 
it works. So, you know, if, if you're really, really cold outside and you go and get a jacket and you put the jacket on, you're no longer cold when you're outside, you've dealt effectively with the negative stimuli called being cold. So trauma is not something carved into your flesh. It's not something carved into your bones. It's not tattooed in permanent ink on your forehead. Trauma says we're in danger. We must get to safety. That's all that trauma does. Trauma says we're in danger. We must get to safety. Now, as long as you remain in danger, you will remain traumatized. Of course. As long as you are being chased by the bear, you can't have a nap. <laughs> and you, you, as long as you're still in danger, you will remain traumatized. Because we have this view. It's a kind of funny view. I can kind of understand it. But we have this view like, oh, I went through all this trauma and I'm scarred for life and I can't change things and I could be traumatized forever. That's not true. That's not true at all. You will cease to experience the effects of trauma after you have gotten to a place of safety. You ever do this where it's a really, really annoying feature of, of phones, right? Like you turn on your car and you got Bluetooth in your phone. If your car has Bluetooth, you know what happens. Your phone is like, he must want to listen to the same song of the last 20 times he started up his car. Oh, and let's see if we can put it at volume 4,000. Right? So, um, what was it? Some Queen song that used to come on with one of my old phones. It's a really bad song, too. Action! Action this day. Oh, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible song. That whole Hot Space album, the first side, was just a hot mess of uh, coke-headed German disco hell. But... So you ever have this, you, you turn on your car and some song starts blasting. Why? Because you were on the phone with someone on your Bluetooth and you had to turn the volume way up and then you just start the car and your phone's like, you know what, let's play Action This Day at volume 12,000 because that's going to be great. And you're just like, bah! right? You get this startled response. And you can't turn this feature off, by the way. It's the most fucking stupid thing in tech these days that your phone will just blast music when it connects to your Bluetooth and as far as I can tell, and I did look this up, doesn't mean I'm right, just means I couldn't find, there's no way to just like stop auto-playing the sh <laughs> shitty songs. Sorry, just stop auto-playing these songs. Can't do it. No choice. So you start up your car and you've forgotten about this. Your volume's up and some stupid song starts blasting, right? You get the startle response, right? And then what happens? You turn the music down and you curse the very tech gods that have put such a ridiculously unstoppable, retarded feature of ear blasting into your environment, right? I mean, you know, hearing loss is no price to, it's, no small, it's a small price to pay for being trackable by the government. So the volume's loud, you startle, you turn down the volume, and you relax. Why? If you leave the volume that loud, you'll adjust to it a bit, but you'll still be tense, right? So trauma is there, and it keeps going, not because it's carved deep into your soul and you can't, right? can't erase it it's changed who you are and it's like it's not like a tree that grew in a certain shape that you can't fix trauma is just scanning are we safe 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 that's all it's doing and as long as you're not safe you will continue to experience trauma now all the people who traumatized you do not want you to feel safe for the simple reason that if you feel safe it's because they're not in your life anymore assuming that they can't reform and become better, which is usually not the case, right? Usually people can't reform and become better. 
they may fake it, they may whatever, right? If, if in an extremity, you can wrestle a couple of concessions out of them, but it usually doesn't last. So all the people who traumatized you don't want you to be safe because if you're safe, they can't exploit you anymore. <laughs> they can't get resources from you. They can't justify themselves. They, they have to answer uncomfortable questions like, why doesn't your child want to see you anymore? We haven't seen so-and-so or that, right? So you've got this battle. Your trauma is saying, get the hell to safety. And everyone around you who traumatized you is like, you're never getting away. <laughs> and so that's the battle. And trauma is uh, just trying to, uh, trying to get you to safety. That's all it is, right? All right. <sighs> if we raise our children peacefully, have we dealt with our trauma, the trauma of our parents hitting us? Well, no. You deal with the trauma of your parents hitting you, then you can raise your children peacefully. And dealing with the trauma, like we almost want to do this thing. I guess, again, it's just put out there by shitty people in a shitty world. But we always want to do this thing where it's like, well, I want to deal with my parents abusing me without ever confronting my parents abusing me or not having them around if they continue to abuse me. And it's like, that's like saying, well, I, I want to deal with the pain of my hand burning in a fire without taking my hand out of the fire. It's like, well, you can't, you can't do that. Because the whole purpose of trauma is to compel you to action to get you to safety. Right? That's the whole purpose of trauma is to propel you to action to get you to safety. So if you are in a place of safety, you won't hit your children. Should we stop extending universal principles to people who have no conscience? So the fact that people don't recognize or accept universal principles has absolutely no bearing on the validity of those universal principles. This is something where people get confused about with morality and the way that I've talked about it, universally preferable behavior. They think universally preferable means universally preferred behavior, and that everybody wants to not steal, not rape, not assault, not murder. That's not the way things work. You know, a physicist doesn't have to say, if he comes up with some hypothesis or conjecture about physics, he doesn't have to say, well, there are some people in the Congo who don't believe in this. He doesn't have to do that. He, the only thing that matters is, is it true, valid, reproducible, conforming to experimental evidence and internally consistent, right? That, that's all. Einstein didn't have to say, well, there's a lot of people who don't accept the general or specific theory of relativity, right? I mean, Darwin didn't have to say, well, there's a lot of people who don't accept evolution, and therefore evolution is in doubt. It's like, no, is it valid? Is it provable? Whatever, right? And so the fact that there are people who don't accept universally preferable behavior has no bearing on the validity of universal, universally preferable behavior. In fact, Every conceivable theory of ethics must contain within it the recognition that there will be some number of people who will reject that theory of ethics. Of course, because ethics requires free will, our ability to compare proposed actions to ideal standards. And ethics, by its very definition, is not physics. See, gravity operates whether you think you can fly or not, right? But morality, if it was something that everyone chose all the time, I don't even know what that would be. It would be the denial of free will and therefore the denial of morality. So there are going to be significant numbers of people, certainly in the present, much fewer in a future society where children are peacefully raised. But there will be significant numbers of people, always and forever, who will reject morality. 
And then people say, well, that means that morality is invalid. It's like, no, that means that free will is operating, <laughs> right? And uh, the whole purpose of is to try and convince people to be moral, not to assume that they will. I mean, the fact that there are fat people doesn't mean that diets are invalid. <laughs> it just means that some people choose not to diet, right? So extending universal principles to people that have no conscience. No, because if you stop extending universal principles, you're breaking their universality. It's like saying, should we stop extending scientific principles to people who reject science? No, you just go ahead with your business, let them reject science all they want. Let people reject morality all that they want. Maybe they'll hit someone who will cure them of their immorality with a self-defense bullet if they're being violent, right? Uh, I do think intelligent dogs can compare their actions to a standard. If they chew your shoes, they know they are wrong, tail between the legs. No, they don't know that they're wrong. They don't know about property rights. They don't know about respect for property or anything like that. They know that they're disapproved of, which is a very primitive form of pre-morality. It's not the same as them understanding why what they did is wrong. All right. Um, you said that, uh, what is your favorite childhood memory? <laughs> it's going to sound odd. So, oh, did I just lose something? No, oh, we just had another hiccup there, didn't we? Are we back? Are we back? We're back. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why this piece of shit software and website can't keep a stream going. Maybe I'll lower the resolution next time. All right. So what do we got here? My favorite, so my favorite childhood memory. I mean, there's lots, but I would say that one of my favorite childhood memories is sitting in detention with a bunch of my ne'er-do-well friends. I was in maybe grade four. And... You know when you get the, the giggles as a kid, it is like some of the most enjoyable. I get them occasionally as an adult, right? Just you just everything is hilarious and you can't stop laughing. And it's a beautiful slice of heavenly joy. And a friend of mine laughed so hard, he farted like incredibly loudly. It was just at the right angle. He farted incredibly loudly. And that made me laugh so hard that I farted. And you know how some farts you have, it's like, oh, that's a little unpleasant or whatever, or that's, you know, and some of your bowel matter is in my nose now. And some farts, it's just like, it's the portal to hell itself. It's like if Satan turned his anus inside out, infused it with evil and lavender and sent it skyward, it would be like, oh my God, I'm smelling not just a fart, I'm smelling distilled nasal evil well it was one of those but nobody heard anything because it was one of those farts and i just remember my friend laughing he farted i laughed i farted and it was just a totally evil fart i don't know what i'd eaten but apparently it was immorality and what happened was my friend said oh yours is even worse and then my friend across the table said yeah silent but violent <laughs> and i remember Silent but violent just rang in my head. It was like the funniest thing that I'd heard. The rhyme, the timing, and everything. It was the kind of thing, it was the kind of thing where if you were drinking milk, it comes out your nose. It was that level of hilarity, and I just remember that. And of course, the funny thing is silent but violent 
uh, is exactly what I talked about earlier in the show in the synchronicity kind of way, where if you don't have free speech, people get aggressive. Silence is violence. Silent, but violent. But that moment, uh, and it was really, I don't know, it's like 10 straight minutes of just absolutely hysterical giggling where everything was funnier and uh, it all just worked perfectly. So, Do you think that children acting out or misbehaving is mostly a side effect of lack of love and not listening to the deep needs of the child? Yeah, I mean, acting out is when you escalate because you're not listened to. So if you listen to your kids and you reasonably try to address their concerns, then uh, they won't act out. All right. Steph's involuntary response to farting. Yes, indeed. Farting is just a reminder of, of that all of our intellect is based upon a rather fragile and messed up body. All right. Any last questions or comments? I already did an hour. I suppose I did an hour-long show today. I also published my daughter and I's critique of of um, Cinderella, which I hope you will check out. She's great. And so I'm happy to have a bit of a shorter show tonight, if that's all right. Any last questions or comments? I feel like I'm still dealing with trauma, even though I live far away from my parents and rarely contact them. Is there a mental aspect to overcome? I'm sorry, why would you... Why would you... If, if, if your parents were abusive and they remain abusive and you, you don't want to put up with that abuse, why would you be... Maybe I'm misunderstanding something, but why would, why would you contact them? See, here's the problem, right? If you are still in contact with people who are abusive to you, even if you say, well, it's just a couple of times a year and I'll just go visit at Christmas and so on. But the door is open. The door is open. Now, they may leave you alone for a while. They may let you run the leash for a while. But then when they need something, they will bring you up short. They will reel you back in. They will reel you back in. It's sort of like saying, yeah, you know, I broke up with this girl and, you know, we'll get together for sex once in a while. But, you know, we're not together. It's like, well, but you're not able to really get to someplace new, are you? Because you're still physically and emotionally bonded with this girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, right? So if you have, let's say, abusive parents, if you have abusive parents in your life, they won't stop being abusive, they won't stop putting you down, and you're still in contact with them, you're just leaving the door open. And that means that you're going to date someone and that someone is going to say, let's go meet your parents. And you're going to, your parents are going to get old and sick or need something or, or need help and they're going to put all the pressure on you and all that, right? So, man, boundaries are boundaries. So you may not... Um, I would imagine that's why. All right. Review the philosophy of B-movie. I think I did, to be honest with you. Maybe. Maybe. I think I did. All right. Uh, call in Friday night about the dreams I've had. Uh, yes, you can. 7 p.m. Eastern. We'll do it over Telegram. All right. Philosophy of Shrek. <laughs> How did you get the ducks? What happened to the mother? Um, so it's people we know who have a farm who have ducks and they just had more ducks than they needed. So let's see here. All right. Our leftists write about cars ruining cities. Was Stalin a Jew? No, I don't think he was a Jew. He was a bank robber when he was younger and a nihilist. Is there anything in the next couple of months that you're excited about? Yeah, seeing what happens to the world, I suppose. 
Aren't people without conscience, consciousness just animals? Aren't people without consciousness just animals? Well, animals have consciousness. Do you mean people without conscience? Um, people without a conscience aren't just animals because animals don't possess a conscience and can't have a conscience. So, all right. Well, I think I'll close off here. I really appreciate everyone dropping by tonight. Sorry about the technical hiccups, but I'll try lowering the resolution and frame rate next time. I'm a big one for high quality video as high quality as possible. So have yourself a lovely evening, everyone. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. If you'd like to help out the show, I'd really appreciate that. Plus, as always, go to freedomain.com forward slash almost. Listen to this book. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's deep. It's rich. It's powerful. It's beautifully written. Great characters, if I do say so myself. And um, I'll also give you another one, which is you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash TGOA for the God of Atheists. fdrurl.com forward slash TGOA. Man, I'm looking fine. I mean, 55 in two days. Oh, I'm looking fine. Look at that. Not too many wrinkles. All right. Have yourself a great evening. Lots of love from up here. Take care, everyone. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.